1: I'm your host, Perseus Poku. On today's episode, we wanted to continue our discussion on the legitimacy or veracity of the New Testament. And a few weeks ago, we had an opportunity to uh, have a special guest on our show who was familiar with the New Testament and gave us information that would help us to be bold in our perception of the uh, New Testament manuscripts. And so for our guest today, we have the distinguished professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary in San Diego, California. He's also on the committee that uh, inspects and look at the New International Version translation of the New Testament. Uh, We want to welcome Dr. Mark Strauss. Uh, Dr. Strauss, how are you today?
2: Doing great, Perseus. Thank you. Good to be with you again.
1: Thank you and for making time for our listeners. And we had such a good discussion last time, we ran out of time. And so for today's episode, we wanted to continue the questions uh, that we didn't get a chance to answer on the last episode. So my first question to you is, what was the impetus or reason for creating the new international version of the Bible?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it arose. Um, in the 1960s, um, a man named Howard Long, who was a Christian businessman, was trying to find a Bible uh, to put into the hands of his friends um, that was um, easy uh, or readable. Um, he was using only the King James Version at the time, and he realized when he passed it off to non-Christians to, to read, they could not understand it. So he had this vision for a translation. Um, His denomination was the Christian Reformed Church, and um, together he got some business people together, and they they talked to the church, and they commissioned this, turned into an interdenominational project. The National Association of Evangelicals came along. um, In December of 1964, a joint committee was formed, uh, made up of evangelicals, conservative Christians from a variety of different denominations, um, and they commissioned the work. It wasn't yet called the New International Version. They didn't have a title for it for a long time, but eventually um, it came to be named and was subsequently published. Uh, The New Testament was published in 1978. Um, Let's see, no, the full Bible appeared in 1978. I'm sorry, the New Testament appeared before that. And um, the goal was to have an English language translation that was both highly accurate to what the meaning of the original Greek and Hebrew said, um, but was also written in contemporary English um, so that it sounded as natural to the modern reader as Paul would have sounded to the readers of his first century church. And so that was the goal, and um, very rapidly the NIV grew in, a, in um, popularity. It eventually overtook the King James Version in terms of its, its popularity and sales because it was a version that was both, both accurate but also uh, readable, clear, and accurate.
1: I appreciate that. So since it's called the new international version of the Bible, does that mean that there were uh there was a predecessor?
2: No, no actually not. There is no international version of the though <laughs> no, every, everyone uses, you know, those those terms new, international, standard. Uh there there's a million different translations with all kinds of acronyms, NIV, ISV, ESV, um NASB, you know. Right. It goes on, it goes on and on. Uh, no, it was it was. It's a brand new version in the sense that it didn't. It wasn't a revision of a previous version. Got it. A lot Got of versions it. are are revisions, and right. you know, um, The new, um, the revised standard version is an origin er, a revision of the revised version. And right. The new revised standard, et cetera. But no, this was a brand new translation. Uh, translate directly from from Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Of course, they had their eye on other versions. You're not going to ever translate in a in a vacuum, but right. but it was a new version. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, thank you. And so my next question has to do with an extension of what we talked about last time. You and I had a chance to uh, talk about this subject, and the question that I posed to you the first time was: um, There are different groups of manuscripts that were found. And uh, we talked about the Western and and, uh, Byzantium and Mm -hmm. the Alexandrian, and I think you mentioned the Caesarean, is that correct? Caesarean, uh-huh, that's right. So which groups were used for the new international version?
2: Right. In fact, the NIV, like, and I should say, this is just not the NIV. This is all modern versions, with only one exception. The only exception would be the New King James Version. All modern versions use what we refer to as the critical text. Critical is not meant to be a negative term. Critical means that it is, that text is derived by using the tools of what we call textual criticism. Textual criticism is the goal of determining the original text of Scripture. We have... Something like five thousand manuscripts, handwritten copies of parts or whole of the New Testament. No two of those are exactly alike. So how do we work back and find what the original author wrote if we have different, uh, minor different reasons, nothing major or significant, but minor different readings in these different manuscripts? And that that science and art is known as textual criticism. And so any any version that is derived using Textual Critic is called a critical version. That That's what it means. So okay. it's not a negative term. It's okay. just used. Now, if you, if you use the rules that scholars have developed for trying to figure out how um, scribes um, accidentally and intentionally change the text, mm-hmm. you come up with a text that ends up being quite close to the Alexandrian family of manuscripts. So most scholars, the vast majority, both liberal and conservative, conservative as well, would argue that the Alexandrian family of manuscripts is closest to the original. That doesn't mean all the readings in the Alexandrian family are right. right. So the NIV is based on um, an eclectic text, a text derived from using the tools of textual criticism. It's, it's called, you know, it's a standard critical text. There's two major editions of it. One is by the United Bible Societies. Um, the other is called the nestle Aland text, and those two texts are essentially the same, and they're both based on trying to determine from our earliest possible manuscripts what's the correct reading.
1: Thank you for that. Sure. My, my next question um, stands out very clearly um, when one does a study of the New Testament, especially using the New International Version, and that's... Um, John chapter 5, verse 4, for those that use the NIV, they will notice very clearly that um, it it goes, uh, it reads chapter 5, then it's uh, verse 3, skips to verse 5, and um, Mm -hmm. many of my listeners and those that I've come and encountered uh, have have questions about that. Why isn't verse 4 right after verse 3?
2: Sure, that's a great that's a great question. That bothers people because, of course, they <laughs> they see that and they say, "Why did the NIV take a verse out of right. the Bible?" And, right, right. Um, and really, what the NIV is doing is not taking an, a verse out of the Bible. It's um, it's removing a verse that was never in the original Bible. At least this is this is the conclusion the scholars have reached. In other words, if you look at the earliest manuscripts and what we would say are the best manuscripts they don't have that particular line. Um, Now, I say line because, remember, none of the original manuscripts had verses. The verse divisions, the chapter divisions, are something that were added much later. So there were no verses, there were no chapters, there were just sentences and paragraphs and so forth. And so our earliest manuscripts do not include that line. It was added for one reason or another by a later copyist. At least that's the conclusion scholars reach. So what happened is, when the verses were put in, that line had already been added in some manuscripts. The manuscripts that were used, that were being used, the later manuscripts, not the earlier ones, the later manuscripts that were being used when someone added verse divisions and chapter divisions. So, of course, they gave that line a verse number. Although, you know, as we've looked at earlier, more reliable manuscripts, we realize that line is not in there. So we're not taking it out, we're actually removing something that was never meant to be there in the first place. Now of course this can be disputed, scholar some some could say, Oh no, we think that line should be included, and that's why we put it in a footnote. Got it. But but our earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have it. So we don't believe it was part of the original word of God. The the verse divisions are not inspired. They they were added much later.
1: So that brings me to another question then. If a, t- uh, a text or manuscript is very early. Uh, does that necessarily mean that uh, it was part of the original?
2: Right. That's a great question because does early always mean better? And of course, we would say no, not always. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, there could have been a bad copyist quite early on who made made a lot of mistakes. So, age is one factor to continue, but uh, to consider. But we have to consider other factors and. The other factors we consider are those rules that I was talking about. Rules of how do copyists tend to make mistakes? So we've mm-hmm. developed a lot of rules to, to try to figure out how they would normally make mistakes, and then work backwards to the original. So if a if a reading, let's say th- the absence of that verse is one particular reading, if that reading comes in both the it's absent from the earliest manuscripts, but it also um, seems to have been added by a later copyist, by a later scribe, because of the rules would suggest that this was added to smooth over a difficulty, for example, mm-hmm. something like that. Then we would say, well, th- that's both external evidence—the manuscripts themselves—plus internal evidence would suggest that this is a later reading. So it's more—it's more than just age, though age is a big factor. It's not the only factor.
1: Got it. So my next question deals with Bible translations and. Um, I'm always asked which Bible translation do you recommend or is the best so I've posed that to a a number of New Testament scholars and I want to give you the courtesy response to that which Bible translation do you recommend
2: well, you know, I always tell my students the best Bible translation is the one you'll read. You know? So, <laughs> so if, if you don't read it, it's not worth anything. Right. So, uh, so I would say, you know, if, if people grow up... I grew up with the New King James Version. Uh-huh. You know, I that was the, the version that I... Not the New King James, but the original King James Version. Mm-hmm. And I memorized it and know it, you know, passage by passage, by heart. Right. And so... Um, it's a great Bible. Now I, I tend to use a more modern version now because that's the way people speak, but um, if you love a particular version, I would say read that version. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with reading it. Um, the, the differences are minor. You're going to get the truth in any, any solid Bible translation, and the vast majority are, are well done. Um, having said that, I do use the NIV as my preaching and teaching Bible, and primarily for, my, for, for devotions. I think it's a good balance between a highly idiomatic um, translation and a more literal translation. It's, a good, it's good written in good, clear English, but it's also highly accurate. But I always do also tell my students that they should use more than one. It can be enormously beneficial right. to read and examine and compare translations. Comparing translations is almost like having a commentary in front of you, because you see what, what whole hundreds of scholars have decided based on the best best evidence. And so you can see, you know, a passage might mean, might have a question of interpretation. Could it mean this or could it mean that? Well, if you read two different translations, you're likely to see both possible meanings or some different nuances of possible meanings. So having more than one version is is like having extra study, uh, Bible study tools in front of
1: you. Excellent, excellent. So... Um, In terms of the so-called lost books of the Bible that we hear about on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, uh, can you comment on that for our listeners? Sure,
2: sure. Yeah, we talk about the Gospel of Thomas, for example, Mm -hmm. or the Gospel of Judas, which was a a so-called lost gospel that was discovered not so long ago. Well. I, I always tell my students, these are not lost Gospels, actually. Um, in fact, they're not lost. I've got them in my office. You can come <laughs> see them. They're, they're called the apocryphal Gospels. And we've got them. We've had them. The vast majority we've had for centuries. They're right. not lost Gospels. They're rejected Gospels.
1: Right. They're right. Gospels
2: that the Church realized weren't part of the inspired Word of God. And they, and they realized they weren't written by the original authors that claimed the Gospel of Peter, the so-called Gospel of Peter was not written by Peter. Everyone agrees on that. Even right. liberals agree on that. The Gospel of Thomas was not written by Thomas. The Gospel of Judas... These are later Gospels written by usually heretical groups, you know, right. false Christian movements. Not always. Some of them are actually Orthodox. I right. mean, they're, 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 their beliefs would not be out of touch with the, the teaching of the Apostles. But they're written later. They're written by... Um, they're written false. They're falsely ascribed to apostles when the apostles didn't write them. They also really don't have the same prophetic power. I mean, I I tell my students, you don't need to be afraid of these Gospels. Go ahead and read them, and you'll see that they're just not the same. This is not God's Word. This is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But yeah, so I would, it's always funny when you see the lost books of the Bible, because they're always (laughs) books that we've had for centuries. Um, But the Church rejected them, because they were not inspired scripture
1: so in terms of uh, your statement that uh, the church rejected them um, what how, what was the vetting process in terms of trying to determine uh, that these yeah. particular writings were uh, not inspired by the Holy Spirit?
2: That, that's another great question because it wasn't, you know, I don't know if you read the Da Vinci Code or a book, books like that. Yes. The Da Vinci Code ba- said basically there were, you know, 80 or so Gospels all vying for authority and, and they chose the four that would fit their theology the best. Well, that's historically, that's simply nonsense. That's simply wrong. Our four canonical Gospels, the Gospels in our canon, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels mm-hmm. in our Bible, um, were the only Gospels written during the first century, the only Gospels that had connection to the Apostles. Um, all these others were later. So when I say rejected, I mean rejected later. The Church knew what the four Gospels were. Right. And then these others started to show up, and they were rejected. And as far as the criteria that they used, it was they, they realized they weren't connected to the Apostles. They were falsely ascribed, the authorship. They were late. They were long after that time. They sometimes taught doctrines that were contrary to what the apostles t- teach or taught, um, like the Gnostic Gospels, for example. That, they have no connection to Jesus. This is, Gnosticism right. is a later movement connected to Greek philosophy. So the Church recognized that these were not part of the teaching of Jesus or the teaching of the original apostles.
1: And Dr. Strauss, to your knowledge, uh, did any of the early Church Fathers respond to the, some of the so-called oh, yes. Gospels? Oh, Yeah,
2: they're mentioned in several Church Fathers, and they're rejected in those Church Fathers. Um, Tertullian is a great example, because Tertullian, the early Church Father, actually speaks about the Gospel of Judas. This is why when we finally discovered it, not so long ago, we realized it was probably authentic, but by authentic, we don't mean it was written by Judas. We mean it was a second century or later um, false gospel written in Judas's name. And mm. we know that because the early church father, Tertullian, mentions it, and he says it's a false gospel. So we, we do know that they, you know, be, beginning in the second century A.D., the 200s is what we're talking about here. Right. Um, these gospels started to show up, and the church fathers would occasionally comment on them as being, you know, false and and not connected to the apostles
1: so you, you said the 200 AD was uh, uh was it a third century or in the yeah, one you know, yeah
2: i'm sorry that the 200 would be the beginning of the third century so between 100 and 200 would be the second century okay so probably yeah thanks for catching that you're right <laughs> um in the middle of the 150s or you know that's the gospel of thomas is probably dated To the middle of the second century, and that's most scholars think that may be one of the earliest of the apocryphal gospels. But the second century runs from 100 to 200. Yeah.
1: Okay, and then my next question deals with the uh, with with commentaries. Uh, I know, or I've spoken to a lot of Sunday school teachers who um, are very dedicated to their teachers' edition commentary on a particular passage. What are uh, what recommendation would you give our listeners in terms of the usage of uh, commentaries? Yeah,
2: that's another good good question. I think I think we need balance in this issue because I'll hear some people say they'll say you should not use commentaries. You should only, you should read the Word of God, not listen to the words of man. You know, and commentaries—that's just someone's opinion on the text. Well, no, that's an over—I mean, that's an overreaction. You should never let commentaries replace your reading of the text. Uh, you know, read your Bible first, but, but certainly um, the Bible translation you're using itself is done by scholars trying to determine what the original Greek and Hebrew meant. so it 's a commentary of sorts that way. So commentaries are helpful tools to help us better understand what the text actually meant. And in most cases, that commentary is going to be written by a scholar who spent years studying the original languages studying the history, studying the background. So so it's a helpful tool. Uh, To those who reject commentaries, I'd ask, would you ever ask your pastor about the meaning of a text? Mm -hmm. Or would you ever ask your Bible professor or Bible teacher the meaning of a text? Well, of course we would, because we know that they've studied it, and they've studied the history and culture and context. And so consulting a commentary is just like asking an expert who's studied this text what they think the meaning is, and and the reasons for that interpretation. So we should not let you know commentary reading replace our study Bible, our, our study of the Bible, but we should use it to supplement it, um, and then compare more than one commentary. You know, don't always be following just one particular individual's perspective.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for the clear answers to these questions and. I know I've been helped just through this conversation, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So, uh, Professor Strauss, thank you so much for taking time out for us, and I will be in touch, but thank you again.
2: Uh, my privilege. Those were great questions, by the way. I appreciate your insight.
1: Thank you. I'll be in touch. All right. Talk to you later. Bye, professors. Uh That is uh, Professor Mark Strauss uh, from Bethel College or Seminary. And we thank him for his uh, response to these uh, questions to edify us and to help us uh, know which uh, translations to consider, especially the New International Version. We thank him for the historicity uh, and the background of how it originated. And as always, we want to encourage all listeners to uh, be studious and to not only read the Bible, but to study the Bible. For as first, Peter reminds us that we should always be ready to give each man or woman an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within us, and to do so with gentleness and respect. Uh, just today, I uh, heard a story that uh, was really troublesome, but in the end, it was victory for the uh, protagonist uh, There's a gentleman who worked at Walmart, and he always greeted his Uh, customers would be blessed and uh, soon someone complained and Walmart told him he couldn't do it anymore. But uh, the community gathered and uh, responded and said, no, we enjoy him telling us to have a blessed day and Walmart recanted and we praise God for all these victories. And like him, we want you to stand, stand up for the truth, stand up for what's right and continue to uh, be a beacon for your home and community and we always thank you for praying for us and we encourage you to become a financial sponsor of Ace Apologetics and we thank God for this opportunity to share with you all and to uh, be part of the co-laboring group for Jesus Christ so please remember to do for the truth what others do for a lie and may God continue to bless each one of you and the ministries that you're involved in.
0: Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister, Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time, and remember, Titus 1, nine says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught, so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org.